Welcome to the latest Fifth Step podcast. Today I'll be talking to Fifth Step CEO Darren Ray uh, about potential cyber uh, mis-selling. Um, a recent report um, came out saying that cyber policies have got major flaws. Um, it's reported that you know insurers and brokers are actually using scaremongering tactics uh, to make companies or businesses buy cover. Um, so, Darren, um, in your opinion, are we about to witness a potentially new mis-selling scandal? I think this is a really interesting topic, Chris, because lots of businesses are out there. They recognise that they need you know, some form of um, cyber coverage, but they're not necessarily um, cyber experts. Um, you know, they're going to their insurers and asking the questions. But you know, whether there's active mis-selling or not, I, I've not witnessed that, uh, you know, I'll be honest. But one of the things that you and I have spoken about, and I'm sure we've spoken about it on a number of the podcasts, to be honest, is that... There's no real active research um, or, uh, you know, the rating, I believe, uh, of cyber policies is not as accurate as it should be. Mm. In fact, you know, we've worked with some insurance companies actually helping them, um, you know, deal with some of those issues uh, directly and helping them make their policies uh, and the questions they ask more appropriate to the risks that are actually being faced by businesses rather than being... um, you know, pseudo-science or pseudo-cyber questions, perhaps, uh, more yep. accurately. So I think one thing that's definitely out there is, you know, that piece around not recognising the, the true risks. And perhaps that, you know, perhaps that does feed into some form of, you know, mis-selling or not. I don't know. I, I definitely can't Well, the, the report says that um, what they were, they were saying is that it's the majority of the off-the-shelf um, cyber insurance policies that have got major flaws, and they do actually echo, you know, this consultancy that produced a report does echo some of what you're saying, because they're saying that some firms require entirely different cover to what they're being sold. Mm. So, uh, you know, that, that sort of ties in with that, doesn't it? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think that in some respects the insurance industry has a little bit of a reputation for, you know, selling a, an off-the-peg product to a bespoke organisation, and you know, we all know that you know off the peg is made to you know fit an average, if you like, as opposed to being tailored to your specific needs. So, you know, cyber is a very tricky cover to get right. Well, you know, off the, you know, off the peg, I think. Yeah, and as you said, I think you mentioned in the past that you know there are some insurance companies out there that if they went out to market to get cyber insurance for their you know, for their own business, uh, they wouldn't even be uh, granted that kind of that cover because uh, they're uninsurable. Well, yeah. So, um, yeah, so the story behind that is, um, you know, an insurer, and this was a couple of years ago, so um, an insurer um, uh, having spoken to their cyber security, uh, sorry, their cyber insurance underwriter, um, the cyber insurance underwriter said that he wouldn't actually insure the insurance company um, if they were presented um, to him, and that obviously put uh, you know a number of ripples through the organisation and uh, you know, made the the C-suite and the board actually question a number of aspects about you know their their approach to cyber security and information security, and that's actually the point that uh, Fistep um, became involved with the organisation and helped them get. Uh, uh, you know, to make significant improvements in that area. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a you know there's a proliferation of specialist cyber insurance products, aren't there? So, uh, but the issue the issue is that cyber insurance is you know in some ways is still a, a new and untested you know financial product. It's very comp- very complex. Um, 
So, you know, what? How would you how would you advise people to you know, get their heads around the complexity of this this subject? Well, it's it's complex uh, and it's also fast moving. So, you know, with, between the two of those, it's very you know it makes it a, a you know a tricky subject both to underwrite but also to purchase to ensure that you've got the right kind of coverage. You know, as a business, um, you're looking for you know broad coverage. Uh, you know, you want the kind of coverage that gives you. Um, you know, business interruption, if that's uh, something that's important to you. But you really need to be looking at your at your business, the scenarios and risks that you face as an organisation, and what's important to you. Now, working with a broker, um, you know, is obviously, you know, I believe, for complex insurance, you know, working with a broker is very, you know, is very important. Um, you yeah. know, there are types of insurance where you know, perhaps a broker is, um, you know, less vital to the process these days. And I think many brokers have recognised that and they're changing business. But it, you're working with a, a broker to understand the coverage you need and um, working out what's important to your organisation and what what types of interruption uh, you're potentially, um, you could face, uh, understanding those risks. Now, if you're already working with an organisation to help you understand your cyber security exposure and your data protection exposure, then you'll probably have a far better idea about that stuff and maybe able to just feed that information into uh, the conversation with the broker uh, directly. But if you're not, then perhaps you're going to be working with the, you know, the broker's knowledge of cyber security, which you know, um, is not as good as um, having uh, the expertise in-house or having you know, working with a company like Fifth Step to actually help you do that, um, but it is... Uh, you know, significantly better than nothing in that. Yeah, respect. sure. And in, the insurers themselves, I mean, as you, as you said, I mean, a lot of the time they're actually, you know, you advise insurers, but a lot of them are, are actually buying experience, aren't they, uh, in this, in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've long regarded the cyber security, um, sorry, the cyber insurance coverage to be a, what I call a deferred, deferred to claim business. Mm. Um, so they're buying the coverage buying the experience and then um, you know, when a claim comes in, should a claim come in, then uh, the scrutiny will you know, be paid at the back end of the, um, of the policy rather than at the front end of the policy. You know, meaning it's very, very easy to buy cyber coverage and more difficult to claim against it. And I think that's where the, that article about mis-selling, that's one of the aspects that they're, one of the angles they're coming from is, you know, it's very easy to buy the insurance, but it may have either the wrong coverage or you may not actually be able to claim or may not be able to claim for everything you think you can, um, you know, when, uh, you know, should you, um, you know, suffer a breach or, you know, a denial of service attack or some other form of, um, you know, cyber event. Sure, sure. Okay, and then this, this, this issue, you know, the cyber issue is only going to become uh, more more complex and potentially the fines are going to be larger and the attacks themselves are going to be larger. In fact, echoing those kind of thoughts, there was a, a report launched by Lloyds of London, um, I think it was this week actually, um, which uh, it's, it's quite a, a, an in-depth report. It's called, I, I urge anyone interested in this, this subject to, to read it, it's called Basher. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, eh? but B-A-S-H-E, attack, global infection by contagious malware. Uh, and it, it, it explores scenarios in which companies' devices are you know, affected with malware that threatens to destroy or block access to files unless, unless the ransom is paid. Now, some of, some of the, st the statistics in the report really are jaw-dropping, really. I mean, the, the report estimates a, a cyber attack uh, that 
you know, attacking 30 million devices worldwide, it could cost up to $193 billion uh, and affect more than 600,000 businesses. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go through just a few more statistics, but the other aspect is that the report showed that the global economy is underprepared for such an attack, with only 86 of the total economic losses being uninsured. So that would leave an insurance gap of $166 billion. Um, I mean... Yeah, that's massive. Um, I mean, that's massive. Now, I think it's important to um, help our listeners understand, and, and we'll, we'll include a link um, through to this report in the, um, in the notes, um, you know, in the podcast yeah. uh, information. So have a look at that if you're interested in reading the report. But uh, to make it clear, this is a, a what-if scenario planning. Yeah. Um, kind of um, examination. So they're proposing a scenario um, of a piece of malware, ransomware, that actually goes out, encrypts people's hard disks and demands payment um, before that data can be unlocked. Now, we've seen these real-life examples. Nothing as malicious or um, as virulent as the malware that they're talking about within this particular article, but that's only a matter of time, I'm sure, because... You know, there are many attack vectors and many ways of spreading such software. Yeah. And we just haven't seen that occur just, you know, quite yet. But, you know, there have been several, you know, the WannaCry incident from a couple of years, um, well, about 18 months back now, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The NHS and a number of other people, but the NHS in the UK were, um, you know, very badly hit. Um, so those sorts of scenarios are going to occur. And, you know, when I'm talking to organisations and they're saying, well, these things are going to occur, there's nothing we can do. Um, but the reality is that, yes, these things are going to occur, but the better prepared you are for them, the more likely your organisation is going to be less affected than another organisation. So having a degree of preparedness, uh, understanding the risks that you face and what you would do if you know this kind of scenario um, were to occur and that's the kind of thing again you know organizations like fifth step um you know that's the kind of thing that we that we do and that we help well how, how would you help then say if you imagine it's uh assuming say it's an sme you know lots of type firm you know if they work you know 50 million plus sort of turnover um or you know maybe a, a, a small managing agency uh, uh, you know a syndicate yeah. at lloyd for example how would you go in and help them to uh, prevent that from you know, such an attack from happening. Okay, so there's a number of ways. I mean, first of all, you um, have to understand what their level of um, protection and maturity is within their organisation at the moment in respect to you know, cyber security and information security. So understanding that, we typically start with an assessment and, and understand their, their current position. We'd help them understand the, the threat landscape. So you know, what kind of scenarios and what kind of risks do they actually face? Um, and in doing that, okay, we help them, you know, if it's an organisation that needs to seek and, and gain insurance, um, we're helping them at that point there identify the kind of coverage that they need. Um, if it's not an organisation that's necessarily seeking insurance but needs to be better prepared, then we're then creating a um, security improvement plan that says, okay, these are the gaps that need to be plugged. Some of those may be plugged by you know, software or hardware changes, but very often the gaps need to be plugged by changes in business process, changes in understanding um, of cybersecurity risks, so helping raise staff awareness, for example, but not just you know, not just the everyday people within the organisation. This goes all the way to the board, ensuring that the board yeah. 
the nature of the cyber threats. Okay, so developing that, that security improvement plan is absolutely um, vital. And part of that is, yes, the education. That means that when a machine is uh, compromised by, you know, ransomware, for example, that the person whose machine is compromised, A, recognise recognizes that it's compromised, you know, perhaps understands that something has gone wrong, or perhaps it is right at the last moment, you know, the the ransom demand screen is uh, being displayed on the screen. But either way, they know who to contact, and the organization has a plan to deal with, a, you know, this kind of scenario. Yeah. So you, do you disconnect that machine from the network? You know, what else do you do? What messages are you saying to other people, you know, to the rest of your staff? Um, how are you going to react to, it, to that? Okay, and I think and the flip side of that that is, of course, that um, the, you know, the, the statistic that stands out for me from that report is about the thing about the eighty six percent of the total economic losses being uninsured. So, which suggests that going back to the point earlier on about mis-selling, um, you know, maybe some 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 companies out there might have thought they've bought this uh, spanking new specialist cyber cover, but it might be the wrong type of cover for their needs. Um, precisely, yeah, it may be the wrong cover. They may be protecting. Uh, things that are less important to their organisation um, than they than they thought. You know, they may have cyber security cover, but if it's not covering the the risk factors and the threat vectors that that they need covered and protected, then it's you know it's a as good as useless. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, so, so building on that, I mean, uh, we, we were talking earlier on about the. Uh, in fact, we wrote a blog uh, earlier in the week about International Data uh, uh, Privacy Day. Um, it's the an- the annual day uh, which alerts people to you know what's happening in the information security field. Uh, and based on that, it's a, it's it's been some time since GDPR came out last year. Um, there was a, a report recently that Google, I believe, was fined. Uh, $44 million by the European Union, but the suggestion was that fine, you know, potentially could be a lot higher when, you know, the GDPR um, fines are, are, are properly investigated and, and, uh, and handed out. So what's what's, hap- what's happened since GDPR? It's all gone very quiet on that front in the last few months. Yeah, well, I think you're right, Chris. I think a lot of people have considered GDPR to be one and done. You know, May 25th came and went... Organisations were as compliant as they were on May 25th. Some continued their programmes after May 25th. Some have regarded themselves as compliant, and that's it. We don't need to think about it again. That's not the reality, however, because businesses change. Um, you know, guidance around some aspects of GDPR. If you're an edge case uh, where you think that you're able to do something, but it's right on the edge of um, you know advice, then. You know, there may be slight changes in advice there that mean you have to change the way that you're working yeah. uh, and looking at things. So I would advise any organisation to continue looking at their GDPR stance. I mean, as you say, it's um, well, it's coming up, um, what is it, over eight months now since GDPR. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that people aren't going to need to revisit. Now, on top of that, we've got other countries are where they haven't already jumped on the data privacy bandwagon, are certainly starting to. And this is now beginning to include different states within the United States as well. So you've got California uh, with the CCPA regulation, and that's the um, that's a consumer protection 
um, angle to data protection. But there are many similarities with GDPR. There are some differences too. But organisations need to be considering their data protection exposure on a more global basis, particularly if you're a global organisation, you know, particularly in that case, of course. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the, the, one of the things that uh, people need to check up on, on here is really, uh, as I understand, is, is assessing your compliance maturity. Would that, would that be a correct thing to say? Yeah, I mean, so a part of understanding where you are with GDPR is understanding your level of maturity and your level of compliance with the, with the regulation. Um, understanding your maturity is you know, very much part and parcel of that. So that should be a regular event. And it doesn't, I don't mean regularism weekly, um, but certainly um, probably twice a year, it's worth having a look at that, depending on the size and complexity of your organisation. Twice a year may be too much for some organisations, maybe too little for other organisations, particularly, um, you know, as I suggested, if they've got either a lot of change going on or if they're on the, an edge case. So doing that kind of work, but making sure that it's uh, on a regular frequency, making sure that you've got a change process around GDPR because the fines and reputational damage that you will suffer as a result of a GDPR breach are actually quite serious and they actually make putting the effort in and being prepared for the potential of a breach, but also being prepared and ensuring that you're doing the right things all the way through, um, actually makes them you know, uh, makes that worthwhile doing. Yeah. I mean, speaking to, to Wayne Jolly, who works for, uh, for Fifth Step, uh, he works in the uh, information security uh, resilience team, and he, he, he was touching on this and saying it's also important to have, you know, a clear uh, subject, ac ac subject access request process. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the areas that many organisations um, perhaps didn't appreciate or didn't think or didn't plan enough for how many of those of those they were going to have. Yeah. I, I certainly know of organisations who are having their law firms process subject access requests for them at a very expensive price indeed. Um, you know, far, far more expensive than actually um, you know, doing the work up front. But because there is a 30-day time limit, yes, um, in, in certain cases that can be extended if there's extenuating circumstances. Um, they can be expanded out to or extended to three months instead of the one month, but you've still got a very short period of time to um, collect the information, uh, rule out anything that shouldn't be in there and redact the information. And one of the biggest problems that organisations have um, is redacting information. Um, you know, so if, for example, someone, uh, you know, a former employee writes to your organisation and says, um, I'd like a copy of all of my information uh, that you uh, that you still hold. Yeah. Okay. So an organisation has, um, you know, an individual has that right. So they, uh, the organisation that has to find all the all of the data, and that could be emails, um, HR records, you know, other records, um, documents that they've written potentially. So all of that information has to be gathered together. Then it has to be redacted. So you have to take out any references or personal information of other data subjects, so not the you know, not the subject of the subject access request. Yeah. Um, and then you have to take out information that's either privileged, so if there was, you know, if it's um, part of a, um, uh, you know, a legal uh, battle or something like that, maybe privileged information. Uh, any information that is 
um, confidential information within the organisation, such as intellectual property or something like that. All of that information has to be processed and redacted before it can be sent back to the individual uh, to fulfil the subject access request. Um, so you can imagine how much information that means that organisations have to process. And having a, uh, having a set process that's appropriate to the organisation that is compliant with GDPR, um, just for that one case alone, you know, that one um, subject access request uh, case alone is vital. Uh, so organisations need to be prepared for that, but there's also other requests that people can make. So they can request the right for erasure, they can uh, request the right for uh, correction and all of those kinds of things yeah. uh, as well. So organisations need to have those business processes well-defined and well-practiced and well-staffed. Mm. And I think you, you also need to understand what kind of data assets you have, don't you, and why, and why a malicious actor might go after them. So in a way, that's kind of like almost like a, having your finger on the pulse, isn't it? And that, having a culture where you understand why, why it is that someone might target you as a business. That's true. Um, one of the conversations I've had with businesses, um, less so recently, uh, has to be said, but one of the conversations I've certainly had multiple times is organisations saying, oh, well, the data that we hold isn't uh, really of interest to any hackers. Now, that may be true on the face of it, but you may be the last piece in the puzzle. So it may be that the last piece of information they need is, I don't know, the last line of an address or first line of an address or something like that. And you may say, oh, well, you know, address information isn't, uh, you know, is important in, in its personal information under the GDPR, but it's not like credit card information or something like that. But hackers may be interested in, gathering as much information as they can about an individual because that's the kind of information they need in order to you know, um, perpetrate identity fraud or even just to be able to defraud um, on, a, on a couple of credit card transactions because sometimes that additional information allows um, you know, informa uh, allows um, your know, website to believe that that, uh, that you are the person you're pretending to be. Yeah, so this this is very much an education piece, isn't it? You really need to, in, to sort of educate your in, your employees internally on you know what are the potentially the latest uh, you know cyber fraud schemes. Yes, you're right. I mean that's part of the awareness piece that we were talking about earlier on, and one of the ways that you know Fistep helps organisations is helping their staff understand what fraud is, what hacking is, and what the attack vectors are um, that a particular organisation may face. And not only the organisation, it's important that, that people recognise this for their own personal cyber security as well, because you know, whilst businesses are attacked and do come under, um, you know, are at threat, um, very often individuals are having their credit card details um, stolen or compromised. Uh, you know, and that, that can happen to everyone. In fact, a neighbour of mine just recently had a number of um, transactions go through on a, on a credit card uh, you know, for a couple of thousand pounds each. Um, luckily, um, her bank or credit card provider contacted her before they were all processed uh, to validate the, um, that they weren't fraudulent because they were unusual purchases and um, for unusual purchase sizes and locations. And they were able to identify them as fraudulent before... Um, they've been processed, but that kind of thing mm. happens all, all of you know all of the time. And where those details have been stolen from, or how they've been got hold of, um, you know that individual still is unsure. But the fact that in, individuals are facing this and businesses are facing this too, you know, just demonstrates that you know the bar needs to be raised yeah. for um, 
you know, for awareness uh, on both sides. Scary stuff, isn't it? When you hear some, uh, stories like that from an individual level, it's uh, very, very uh, thought-provoking. Okay, well, I think we've uh, you know, covered most of the things that we wanted to talk about today. Um, I mean, we'll be uh, speaking to Wayne, as I mentioned, you know, before Wayne Jolly, who worked for Fifth Step. Uh, I think we're gonna—he's gonna help to produce a, um, a a blog on the on the uh, the Lloyd's report that we discussed earlier on, uh, yep. explaining some of the findings and some summarising that. So uh, keep an eye out for that because that will be uh, appearing uh, on the Fifth Step uh, website uh, sh- shortly, uh, hopefully in time for for next week um, when it comes out. Um, you'll be able to see that at, at www.fifthstep.com uh, forward slash blogs. So, um, uh, so that's fifthstep, F-I-F-T-H-S-T-E-P.com. So uh, check that out because that's a useful repository for you know, written information. Uh, and we also produce a rate, you know, as well as podcasts, we sometimes do uh, you know, YouTube videos with me and Darren get to scare people with our <laughs> uh, with our uh, un- un- unkempt uh, presence so uh, our, our faces for radio faces for radio exactly exactly that, that was the phrase I was searching for uh, and uh, of course you can reach out directly to Darren yeah absolutely you can find me on on LinkedIn uh, if you search for Darren Ray um, you'll uh, you'll quickly find me uh, Darren Ray Fistep you'll definitely find me very quickly uh, you can also find us on uh, Twitter and um, please do follow us on social media um, lots of the information uh, about new podcasts and new blogs and things like that goes out on both LinkedIn and on Twitter so on Twitter we're at fifth step or one word um, and you know do drop into the website uh, www.fifthstep.com uh, lots of information as Chris um, suggested there uh, lots of um, hopefully thought-provoking thought leadership that will um, you know uh, food give you food for thought and uh, consider things in a slightly different way perhaps to how you've thought about them um, previously. And of course you could actually check out Darren's uh, uh, book writing skills on Amazon because he, he, you've written a book on, well, you wrote a book on GDPR last year but a lot of information contained in that is still very much relevant and uh, well worth uh, investigating. Yeah, absolutely the new book is uh, is underway as well and we'll no doubt talk about that at, yeah. uh, at various uh, points in the future as well. Um, but yeah, do please uh, check out on Amazon if you look for the Little Book of GDPR or the Brexit Readiness Guide um, or the uh, CIO Navigator, which is an IT leadership book. All of those are all available on Amazon. Good stuff. I don't know where you get the time to write all these books, to be honest, but uh, but good for you. <laughs> anyway, on that note, I think that, uh, yeah, that concludes this podcast. So once again, thanks, Darren, for sharing all that information with us uh, and look forward to speaking next time to all our listeners. Thanks, Chris. Great stuff. Uh,